Here's my aim for tonight. Cause the audience to know that Jesus is not the one who is on trial. Hmm. Jesus is not the one who is on trial. Um, I heard that somewhere years ago. God is not the one on, uh, on, on trial. I listened to my favorite British preacher. He took, understood this text or presented this, these last, these next few chapters with that being the, the point that Luke's trying to make to us that, uh, while on the surface it looks like the Jewish leadership is testing Jesus and, and questioning him and you know trying to and the, the the irony and the reality of it is he's not the one on trial they are and in life and in general you know I, you may be like me um, I used to think that somehow God owed me enough evidence you know he needed to satisfy my questions are proved to me that I don't know how that I articulated it that, but that's kind of was the the sense I had until I mean one day years later I mean I, I grew up in church but I and uh, became a Christian somewhere from age ten to age it was about a 10, 12 year process for me to really come to Christ that's a whole other theological discussion <laughs> uh, but somewhere after being saved and being spiritually awakened and starting to read the Bible, I realized, I realized that looking back, that had been my attitude, that I, that I somehow thought that I was, in a, you know, that it was okay for me to judge whether God existed or not. And, it, and it's just not the way it is. <laughs> uh, and, and let me, uh, the other thing that strikes me is I've just thought a lot about these couple of chapters, and I think we'll, we'll see it more in the next few chapters. This whole uh, week in, in Jerusalem and Jesus engaging the, the, you know, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the chief priests, and so forth, leading up to his his, his death, um, is I kind of see two things, and I want to want to remind us of flip over in Acts, you know, which is also written by Luke. Um, you could call it Luke Volume Two, right? We're in the Gospel. We're in Volume One. Acts of the Apostles, or what is he? Anyway, volume two. But Acts chapter two, I think, gives a great uh, little perspective or commentary on the on the depth of what we're studying here in Luke. And it's it's in it's chapter two. It's Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and, and the, the theme here is the 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 contrast or uh, the juxtaposition of the sovereignty of God. Being totally in charge of everything that's going on, in the face of and even using the rebelliousness, you know, the hard-heartedness that we see, uh, particularly in the, in the, on the part of the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership. Uh, verse twenty-two, chapter two, twenty-two. Men of Israel. So this is Peter preaching day of Pentecost. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. I get that. And put him to death. He's talking to the Jewish people. 
you put him to death by the hands of godless men because they turned him over to the Roman, the Romans for the actual execution. But but did you see, did you see that? Have you seen that before? Verse: This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This whole thing was was not an accident. wasn't somehow that God had to come up with Plan B because Plan A didn't go like He planned it. No, Jesus, and, and one of the early indications in, in the gospel accounts of this is Jesus riding in on the donkey. And I, I, I think all four gospels record that. Um, that was orchestrated. That did. Were you not struck by how um, it, it was almost as if Jesus? It wasn't almost. It was as if Jesus, you know, he'd been headed to Jerusalem. We start in, I keep reminding us of chapter 9, verse 51 in Luke's gospel. Jesus set his face like a flint. He set resolutely to go to Jerusalem. And then we've been reminded at several points along the way that even though he's, in it, I think I've told you before, it's about a six month process from 951 to where we are to him coming into Jerusalem. He knew where he was going. He knew why he was going. He, he, he understood, and he was in charge. And, he, and it gets more, more overt. That's, that's the way more I've thought about this triumphant, triumphal, triumphant uh, entry into Jerusalem. As he instructs his disciples, you know, go and find the donkey and bring it here and rides in. And he knows how, they're gonna, how that's going to proceed. Uh, and, and he knows it, and Matthew is very explicit, right, about that he does it in fulfillment of the Zechariah prophecy. Behold, your king comes. Low, low. Who's memorized that? Lowly, low, and humble and lowly, something like that. Uh, riding on a donkey. So, again, that just suggests to me that uh, it's like Jesus, Jesus is, I am the king. And I am coming in. I am in charge. And I'm coming in not like you thought I was. But I am the king. <laughs> um, anyway, so my aim is that... So Jesus is not the one on trial. They and he, the human race. We are. But certainly they are. So the sovereignty of God. And the other thing is... In, and I said it just... In a, just the sovereignty of God using the rebelliousness, the hard-heartedness of... You know, the sinfulness of man. These these uh, religious leadership. Um, well, so let me just I'm going to give just uh, uh, some thoughts. I, I took more time last week. I'm going to try to make that up for you. I know I make these crazy promises, but here my I, I changed my divisions just a little bit. I decided to um, to make my first division two two divisions in this you know that last part of chapter 19 and all of 20. I split it. Well, I said 19, what we started verse 28 down to verse 48. I call that, that's my first division. I call that the king arrives, or the king, the king arrived. And the, the three little, the three divisions there, the three subpoints, I said the king arrived in humility, mounted on a donkey. That's verses 28 to 40. And then verses 41 to 44, I call that in sorrow, Proclaiming judgment. That was the thing I was struck about this. Uh, I'm going to come back to that. In sorrow, proclaiming judgment. 
He wept over Jerusalem. But yet that, that compassion and that sorrow did not... I don't know that... I mean, just the way I think about things, I thought, well, maybe he was so sorrowful that he'd figure out another way or figure out somehow to... But no, no. Uh, even in this text, um, you, your house has left you desolate. Or is that in chapter 13? Anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, so, so in humility mounted on a donkey, in sorrow proclaiming judgment, and in authority, I decided to put to that last little section um, of 19 just to keep it in my, my first main division. Because it seemed kind of su- its summary of, of the week that's... It's kind of a... Luke gives us kind of a summary statement that's gonna, that describes what's, what's about to happen when he says... Um, how does he put it? This is starting. This is verses forty-five to forty-eight. Of course, it includes Jesus coming in, casting out uh, those who are selling, and quoting as he's doing it. It is written. This is verse forty-six, nineteen forty-six. It is written, "And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robbers' den." And I took that as another indication of Jesus asserting his authority. He just comes into the situation. In a position of authority, my house. And I, you can just can you kind of hear some? Of, what do you mean your house? You're quoting Old Testament. That's God's house. What do you mean? He, but I'm just imagine he said it as if my house. Um, and he just, I mean, can you? I just try to picture that scene too. It's 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 the outer court of the of the you know known as the court of the Gentiles. It was supposed to be a place where Gentiles could come into the temple area. But from what I'm reading in past, when we studied Matthew, the, the Jewish uh, leadership had basically let it become this place of where, uh, you know, selling, exchanging money for the, the sacrificial animals. All the pilgrims that would come in, they couldn't bring their animals with them. And it was, I mean, the concept was, was good enough. They knew, you know, they can't bring their lamb or their donkey or even the, the turtle doves or whatever. And so they would just bring their money and they would buy the animals that they that were necessary for the various sacrifices. That was well and good. They just didn't need to be doing it in this inside the temple, uh, the court of the Gentiles. Um, they should have been doing it outside. Because what that meant was the Gentiles couldn't get in. It kind of displaced them. And then he says, uh, verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. That's that summary statement I was talking about a minute ago. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. And again, just the fact that he steps into the, he just comes into the temple on a daily basis to teach and to proclaim the gospel, knowing that the people who run the temple were out to kill him, out to destroy him, looking for a time to destroy him. But he's again, he's in charge. He was in charge, and he knew it, and, and uh, they ultimately knew it. Um, all right, so that's the first division. In the second, chapter 20, uh, I broke, you saw the divisions, and I just called it the king exposed. I don't, I'm not satisfied necessarily with the literary uh, nicety of this, but... Exposure is kind of the key thought that kind of that was the theme or the that 
that came uh, so through chapter twenty, just the, what Jesus, the way he interacted with these, uh, you know, these, the Jewish leadership. Verses one to eight, he exposed their hypocrisy and fear of men. Verses nine to eighteen, he he with that parable of the tenants, he exposed their wicked selfishness. In, it, and I'm not really going to go back through and try to get into a lot of details. Um, you know the, the phrase that I, that's kind of why well, I call it uh, selfishness. Look at um, look at verse fourteen. You know that you read the story. You've talked about it. You studied it. Uh, and, and by the way, they knew. You know when it says uh, when it says verse nineteen. That they the comment the, the the chief priest they understood that he had spoke this parable against them. One of the reasons they knew that is because this this metaphor this picture of a vineyard of a of a uh, a man planted a vineyard. Verse nine. I don't know if you because I didn't mention in my question, but if you go back to Isaiah chapter five, and there's another place I can't remember where it is, but Isaiah chapter five is the classic. Uh, description of, of God planting a vineyard. It, it, and he's referring to Israel, his people. Um, anyway, so they knew. They knew that what, what he was talking about. And in verse 15, why did they kill the son? They cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Uh, back up to verse 14. Why did they do that? Because they reasoned with one another, saying, Hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And apparently there was in Jewish law a piece of land that had no heir. That, that, you know, it was just kind of, what, in probate? I don't know. <laughs> um, could be claimed by the tenants. And so they thought, hey, you know what? This guy, this is the heir. If we kill him, this property, this thing is ours. They wanted it. Um, in verse 16, and I ask you this, I, I was again just struck by, and again, he's telling this, this parable to the people. You, did you see that? He's talking about the Pharisees who are listening. <laughs> but he's essentially he's telling the people about those Pharisees. He's trying to expose the leadership. What's really going on here, people? So he says... Um, but, but what that, all that I just said kind of didn't didn't quite fit Im- immediately because when I said when when he asked in verse fifteen and they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him, what therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And for some reason, I just thought he's saying that to the Pharisees. But not you know and and, and when they heard it, the people. Their reaction was, may it never be. You know, surely not. And he essentially says, surely yes. And he quotes, he quotes Psalm 118 and alludes to uh, Isaiah and, and Daniel. Daniel, is it chapter 2? The first, the, the, uh, about the, the stone that when it falls, it it's crushes whomever it falls on. Um. So they knew, the Pharisees, the leadership. They knew who he was talking about. So that's why I call it the, the wicked selfishness. 
Then 19 to 26, and again, again mentions their fear. You know, they really wanted to grab him, but they they were afraid. They were afraid of the people because they knew he had just he had just indicted us in that parable about the tenants in the vineyard. So they're watching and they're pretending. Pretending, did you see that in verse 20? Pretending to be righteous. I think the ESV, pretending to be sincere. I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy and the rebellion, is, it just drips with that. But it also, uh, I don't know if it drips is the right word, but just how, how much in control Jesus was of the whole situation. He keeps turning their trick questions, their gotcha questions. They think they've got one, right? And he turns it. So much so that two different times in this text it says they, they just they couldn't they didn't know they had to just shut up. They could not say anything else. Um, but the, the, I call this the rejection of God's ownership because I think this thing about the you know, is it right to pay taxes uh, to Caesar or not? And he, he said, you know, who, give me a show me a coin. Who's got a coin? Who's in, whose picture? Whose image and inscription is on it? They say, well, Caesar's. And that whole thing about image apparently is huge in this text. And so, therefore, that you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God what is God's. And you know, I wouldn't see this if I didn't see commentators mention it. But I've heard it and read it many times. He's. This thing about image, well, we are made in the image of God. They were made in the image of God. And therefore, they belong to God. And he said, you need to give your lives to God. And so it's, it's within God's law to give taxes to Caesar. And you can think about Romans 13, Paul, the whole, Romans 13 is the key text. All authority, civil authorities exist because God called, caused it to exist, ordained that it exists. So there's no problem paying taxes. But the bigger issue is these people needed to give to God the things that are God's and they didn't want to. And I think he's talking about themselves. That's why I say they, they, were, they were rejecting God's ownership of them. They were made in God's image. They had God's image stamped on them. So if they were, you know, kind of think of them being the coin, us being the coin. God has stamped His image on us. He owns us. And, that, and so we need to give to God what belongs to God. Again, verse 26, they were marveling and they became silent. And then um, 27, I ended up calling 27 to, to 44, 27 down to 44. I grouped that as kind of one, one topic with two points. Two, and it is their, the, the, my title of that was their refusal to honor God's Word. Because in both of these instances... Um, he quotes them. He points out their their well, either their ignorance or their willful refusal to to take God's word to recognize, you know, to honor God's word as God's word. Uh, first, in the case of uh, this question of the resurrection, and I, I say it every time we see this, and let me say it again. I, you know, the difference how you keep up the Sadducees versus the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Y'all get that? You use that in your Sunday school class. That, that, and he says that, verse 27. They say there's no resurrection. 
They, they actually, they, and I don't, from what I've read over here, you know, they accepted only the first five books of the law. That to them was scripture. Moses wrote that. Everything else was man's thoughts. All right, that's my 20 minutes. So I'm taking another. Ah, ah. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. Um, you know, they give him this, this um, what they think is a trick question. And he says, first of all, you don't know what you're talking about, right? In the res- in, in the you know, marriage is, is in this age, but in the age to come, uh, we won't. There won't be marriage. Did, and just as a as a note, theological hmm, things to make you go hmm. Verse thirty-five. I didn't think. I didn't study it, and we're not going to discuss it. But those who are considered worthy. This is the NAS. You know, but th- those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, you know, the eternal age. And the resurrection of the dead, they neither marry nor given in marriage. I just have a question mark. Those that are worthy. I always thought, well, none of us are worthy. It's just, I don't know if y'all like, you have this theological grid that you've developed over the years. You kind of got this system of the way, what truth is. And then you read the Bible, you go, what do you mean? What do you mean? Those that are worthy. Whoa. So you got, at least I read it and I got to stop a little bit and just check my theology. Uh, I guess I'm worthy if I'm in. If I'm going to heaven, I must be worthy. Why am I worthy? Well, I'm not worthy, but Christ is worthy. And I go on His worthiness. But you just read things that on the surface you think, whoa, doesn't fit the theology that I've worked on, worked so hard to get. And I may say it's considered worthy. That are considered worthy, as opposed to are worthy. I like that. I like that. Sounds more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and God, yeah. Um, it's it's worthy of being raised. Worthy of being raised, raised from the dead. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Because of Christ. Because of Christ's perfection. Uh, and then he said, I love this. Um, so he answered, he exposes their, their, uh, their will, uh, unwillingness to, to um, and they're just their ignorance of, you know, not really reading God's word. But then if, I love verse 37. You know, they, they thought they kind of had him and then he kind of gets out of the trap and he says, oh, but on the question of the resurrection, because it's like, because I know that you don't, you guys don't hold to the resurrection. You ask this question as if there is a resurrection, but you and I both know that you guys deny the resurrection. You know, it's like, who are we kidding here? Nobody. So let me just make a comment about the resurrection. And he says, did you see this? Verse 37, even Moses, right? You guys only accept the first five books because you think Moses wrote that and everything else is not scripture. Even Moses, if you just pay attention to your own text, you would know that there's a resurrection. Because Moses showed there's a resurrection. And how did he show that? <laughs> by the by the tense of the verb. <laughs> the burning bush. When Moses said, he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. I mean, did y'all see, when you read verse thirty-seven, or if you if you went back and read the account in in, in Genesis, uh, was that in Exodus? That's in Exodus. Is that in Exodus? Exodus. <laughs> um, I mean, I've heard, I you think, wait a minute, where where the resurrection? Where was the resurrection in that text? Uh, but Jesus just says, 
you know, he, God, he, it, he is, he is the God of Abraham. Not that he was the God of Abraham. He is the God of Abraham. And he is the God of Isaac and Jacob. Which just tells us something about why, the way we study the Bible. That's why we read the text. And we, we pay attention to the details of the text, as Jesus did. <laughs> and he does it again in the next example, when they then, um, some other, another, what, some scribes come up and they lay on the flat, or you've spoken well. Um, actually, and they, and they just, what do they shut up in verse 40? They didn't have courage to ask him any more questions. But he decided he wasn't through. He said, Let me ask you a question. How is it that they say that the Christ is David's son, the Messiah? Their teaching, the way they taught it, was this Messiah was going to be a son of David. And he quotes from Psalm 118. The Lord, because you know, David wrote this, so David is saying, The Lord, God, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for it. So it's like, wait a minute, who, who is David calling the Lord as his Lord? That's Messiah. So how is it, verse 44, David therefore calls him Lord, putting him up, you know, putting this Messiah over himself. So how is it that the Messiah is his son? And of course they they, they don't have an answer. But again, it's just reading the text. Jesus just was essentially saying, you guys, you know this passage, but you're not willing to admit to accept what it's teaching you. And that's, you know, that's your problem. So anyway, he exposed their refusal to honor God's Word. And then he, then he turns back to the people and warns them of the, uh, the, the, the hypocrisy of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes, love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So there's one place in the Scriptures that teach degrees of punishment. All sin is bad enough to send us to hell, but there will be degrees of punishment. Um, this is one place that talks about that. I'm going to stop right there. Um, so Jesus is not the one on trial. They were on trial. Every man, you know, we're the ones on trial. And we're gonna we're gonna just continue to talk about this theme as we the next week. So next week is just by the way, it is just one chapter, I think, next week, just twenty one. <laughs> not not two chapters, yeah. Twenty one. We'll do that. Matthew, real quick. They devour widows' houses. What are they talking about practically? They are making money off of the. How do they profit? Some kind of. Some, you know, I didn't study that, but. I don't, I don't yeah. Um, specifically, in terms of in context. But uh, apparently. Because there's a similar reference. I think Paul makes a uh, exploit, expo, you know, the exploitation tendency of religious okay. leaders. Let me pray for us. Father, we are, um, we know that you're not on trial. We are the ones on trial. And we thank you. I am just, I'm thankful, Father, that you, in your grace and your mercy towards us, 
you showed us. Um, you, you gave us the, the, the ability to confess our sin before you, confess our need before you, confess that you are God and we are not. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is King, and Jesus is coming back. And uh, not on a donkey, not hu- not in, in lowliness and in humility, but coming back in power. And uh, as we as we go through this week in anticipation of Easter weekend and all that we'll think about and be reminded of in our worship services this coming weekend, uh, just burn these things in, in, into our hearts and our minds, and then. Show us things that, that we've maybe never seen before. All that you've done for us. All the, how, your, your great love for us in Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen.